Okay, so last week I shared with you guys about community, about some of the things that come up in our hearts when we're interacting with other people. Did anybody have a good conversation either with yourself, the Lord, or a trusted friend about that? At least one. Great. That's encouraging. Uh, today we're going to talk about some of the external hurdles that we encounter when we're living life with other people. And, you know, uh, I have to be honest, last week and this week are a hesitant conversation for me to have with you guys because, you know, we'd love to believe in our minds that as Christians, we never struggle with people, right? We know that it's not really the right thing to be offended. We know that we're supposed to forgive 70 times 7. We know all those things, but the actual outworking of that can be really tricky at times. So I want you guys to just buckle your seatbelts. I'm not pinpointing any person in this room by anything that's being said today. I'm just talking about general things that are helpful for us to talk about. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, she's talking about me. I'm not. I'm probably talking about me (laughs) more than anything. So, or Grant, sure. Uh, So just take a deep breath. Don't worry about it. It's going to be a great Sunday. And I'm saying that because somebody said last week, you buffered a lot of the things that you said. And I said, yeah, the looks on everyone's faces was this like mixture of fear and sick to their stomachs. (laughs) I don't know if that was what you ate for breakfast or just not wanting to think about the things that we were talking about. But if you are liking what I'm saying, give me a smile today. That would help quite a bit. Uh, I want to start by telling you a story about one of our friends. His name is Kyle. And this was years ago, probably... uh, 12, 13 years ago, he was a senior in high school, and Grant got this idea that he wanted to start discipling this guy. We were youth, uh, working in youth ministry at this small town right outside Waco, Texas, and Grant, we had just gotten married, and he said, you know, I really want to start spending more time with him, and I said, okay, and I'm thinking to myself, that means on your own time, that's not going to affect me at all, you know, you'll have that, and I'll be me. And then I started noticing we'd go to do something, not dates or anything like that, but we'd go to do something, and he would say, well, I'm going to see if Kyle wants to come. And I'd say, why? (laughs) I mean, I liked Kyle. He was a nice guy, but he was really quiet. And he had what is called a high outer wall and a low inner wall. Has anybody ever heard this concept before? So there are people in the world who have high outer walls. That means they're hard to get to know initially. And often they have really low inner walls. So once you scale that outer wall, you get to know them. It's awesome. There's other people who it's backwards. They have a really low outer wall. It's like you feel like you get to know them in a moment, but their inner wall can be really high. You know, you're like, oh, we're really good friends. Oh, I didn't know that about you, you know. And because it takes time to trust people like we talked about last week. So Kyle was someone with a really high outer wall. He was just quiet. He was a senior in high school. I don't think he had any desire to be my friend, which is fine. And so then he would just be around all of the time. And about a month in, I started thinking, I'm really over this. I mean, you're a nice guy, but, like, you're kind of around all the time. Can I just be totally honest with you guys? Just tell you my real raw thoughts, okay? I never expressed this to anybody at first. These are just thoughts that were in my mind. And I'm like, Lord, I believe in mentoring and discipleship and all that, but, I mean, this is, like, really annoying for me. How can that, can we just make that Grant's thing and I don't have to be a part of it? And so I would say to Grant, what if we didn't invite Kyle to whatever he wanted to invite him to? And he would say, no, he's coming. And I would say, but don't you care about how I feel in this situation? And he would kind of go, no. (laughs) No one in this room is surprised by that, right? And he would say, no, he would say, this is what God is saying, and it'll be worth it. Okay. 
hi, Kyle, how are you, you know? And over about three or four months' time, I started thinking, Lord, Kyle is just a really good guy, but I just want to move on as if this is not, you know, I was ready to withdraw, right? The difficulties of having someone who I didn't feel like I could get to know and instantly connect with were weighing on me to the point where I was ready to find something else to do. Oh, you're going to go to the movies with Kyle? Okay, cool. I'll go do something else, right? But I felt this thing in my heart that God was like, don't pull back, don't pull back, don't pull back. And it wasn't like, you need me in your life. It wasn't like that. It was just, don't pull back. Okay, flash forward a year, and I started realizing Kyle is one of the funniest people I've ever met. He just had a really long on-ramp to friendship, to where he'd feel the confidence to share jokes and whatnot. Flash forward two years, Kyle is becoming one of my best friends. At this point in our life, Kyle is probably one of our most trusted best friends. He lived with us for a season. He's one of our favorite people on the earth. He and his wife live in Waco now. They have a um, crepe stand at the Magnolia Market thing, you know, which is on Fixer Upper. So if you go there in the big tourist attraction, you see the Co-Town crepes, that's them. So if you see Courtney there, you can say, hey, I know the Wartmans because they're one of our best friends. And I was thinking this week as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today, if I had allowed myself to withdraw because of just the awkwardness of not having connected chemistry with him, I would have missed out on one of the most life-giving relationships I've ever had, to be honest. And I could have had it to where Grant had this great friendship and I was really removed from it, but to be able to partner together and have a family friend, some, I mean, he, he goes by Uncle Kyle to our kids. He's a family. He's a brother in every sense of the word. And I was thinking this week, almost just with tears in my eyes, thinking, wow, Lord, if I had not listened to you to just press in, right, and just get over the awkwardness, I would have missed, I'm talking hours of up all night, not up all night, but late night, just we're all crying, we're laughing so hard, we're having the best time, you know. I would have missed, he lived with us for a season, he did hilarious things with our baby that were things that only you would do when you're not a parent and you're like a 20-year-old individual. You know, like we came home from a date one time and Eli was swinging from the little jumper deal, but they had all hid so that they wanted it to look like he was just suspended in air by himself. Things that were like not harmful, but just funny. And it was so life-giving to us to have somebody who cared about our child as much as we did, you know? So that's Kyle's story. I know we all have things in our life where it's like, I don't know that you're who I want to spend my time with. Maybe that's just me, but when you're getting to know somebody, especially if there's someone who has a high outer wall, there can be this feeling of, oh, I don't know, is that, is this going to turn into something life-giving? And if we're not careful, we can abandon ship before we find out why they're even in our lives in the first place. And then, of course, there's the other people who are just really plain difficult. It's just hard to be around them. Maybe they're annoying, maybe they're personality-wise just different from you, whatever, culturally they're different from you, whatever it is, they're just difficult to be around. And it's easy in those situations to go, well, I mean, I, I believe you're a child of God, <laughs> you know, I'll pray for you, but I don't need to spend time with you. Anybody ever think that way? A couple bold ones willing to raise their hand, right? <clears throat> but again, if we don't press in, we miss something really powerful. Next week, Grant's going to talk about how do you really learn to honor people who are really different than you. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be really good. Um, but, so I'm not going to talk about that necessarily in the practicals, but I do want to talk about how community is um, intended to function despite the messiness, okay? 
So as I was asking the Lord this week, how do you want to explain this? He kept reminding me about the disciples. Jesus had the first small group, right? First New Testament small group. And it was the most diverse, eclectic mix of people possibly ever. I mean, we had a doctor. We had a tax collector, which at that time was like they were known as the terrible people in town. Nobody wanted to be their friend. You couldn't trust them. He had fishermen who probably smelled. Let's just be honest. You know, he had this mix of all these people and all of them. If you're familiar with Jewish custom at all, when you became an apprentice to a rabbi or a disciple to a rabbi, you were usually chosen by 13. And there was a process from childhood that that led you to that point. So if you weren't chosen at 13, that meant that there was the spiritual authority of the day did not see ministering ability within you. Okay, doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just meant I don't see you as someone who could be a spiritual leader. So all of the people Jesus picked were already outcast by the typical religious system. So that's one hurdle. And then Jesus is like, you guys are the ones who are going to bring my kingdom. And if we look at it, we're like, these ones? The ones who got passed over by the actual spiritual authority of the day before Jesus, right? And so I want to highlight, we're, today what we're going to do, instead of looking at specific scriptures, I'm going to give you an overview from Matthew 16 to 20. So you can write these down if you want to look at it later. But I want to really encourage you, take some time at some point to read through the Gospels looking for the dynamic of the disciples. Not looking at what Jesus did in his ministry or whatnot, but looking at the dynamic of these crazy people altogether. We're going to do that a little bit today because I think there's something we can all learn from that. So the ones we're going to highlight today are Peter, James, and John. Everybody familiar? These are the three, when Jesus would go do something ministry-wise, he would bring these three closest to him, okay? James and John were brothers, and they were called the sons of thunder, right? They're actually the sons of Zebedee, that was their dad's name, and they were brothers, but Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Now, you don't nickname someone that if they're gentle, sweet, compassionate people, right? That would be a joke to nickname that. You nickname that when they're the people who boom onto the scene and crash into everything around them. The best way I can describe these sons of thunder is in Luke 9 when they're in Samaria. The, Jesus and the disciples are traveling to Jerusalem. They're looking for a place to stay. Samaria at that point in time was the very racist towards Jews. I mean, crazy racist. And they were back and forth to each other. The good Samaritan, that's why that story is important. And so they're in Samaria, and they can't find a place to stay. If you've ever tried to book a hotel for a group of people, it's hard, and that's with Expedia, right? So they're having to go in to in, walking around town, looking for, I mean, I just, I'm like, Lord, wow, how did you keep your calm in that, you know? I don't think he kept his, all that we would perceive Jesus to be calm in that moment, because the disciples could tell he was getting agitated. So this is what the Sons of Thunder came up with as the answer, Okay. They're thinking, and they come to Jesus, and they say, we have it, Lord. We can't find anywhere to stay. This is in Luke 9, I think, 45. Why don't we call down fire from heaven and destroy everyone? That's what it says. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm leading a group of disciples, and these are the people that I'm entrusting the future of the world to, like, you're going to be the ones who represent me in every way, and that's your idea? (laughs) I'd be going, oh, my gosh, I'm so disappointed, and... I got a new, I got to get a new group, right? And so this, but they lived up to their name, the sons of thunder. We know, Lord, let's destroy them all. And I'm thinking, was the answer so that they could just take their houses once they were gone? What was the thinking behind 
that doesn't solve the problem of where they're going to stay, right? Just kill them all. <coughs> so in this process, James and John and Peter, Jesus is giving them permission to become something that they become later, but they're certainly not that at the time, right? Now, as we highlight these stories, here's what I want you to be envisioning. There's 12 disciples, okay? We're only going to be talking about three of them, but there's other people in the group. So picture a community group setting, and there's, let's say, two or three that are consistently kind of being put into a different category, but everybody is a part of the group, right? Okay, so Matthew 16. I'm just going to highlight these stories. You probably know all these stories. So this is the moment where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? I love it. It's kind of like, what's the word on the street about me, you know? And they all go around. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're a miracle worker. And so then he goes, well, who do you say that I am? So each of the disciples are kind of having a heart check. I think you're a prophet. I think you're a rabbi. And Peter has this moment, and he goes, you are the son of God. And Jesus is blown away, right? And Jesus is like, you could not have come to that by your own. That was God that gave you that revelation. And he starts to say, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Okay, picture yourself in the group of the 12, and you're not Peter. It'd be like, oh, man. I said prophet, and I should have said son of God. What was I thinking? Now it's so obvious. <gasps> And now he gets to be the one that the rock of the whole church forever. And, is, and I said miracle worker, like, rah. Anybody ever, you know, you're thinking, I'm so stupid, man. Oh, I missed it by like this much. And then I think they might have also been thinking, and I missed out on being the rock of the church forever. Because that was Jesus that just said, you see what I'm saying? But what they weren't catching is that Peter, by birth, was chosen by God to be that one, right? That's how he ended up with that revelation anyway. So it doesn't make the disciples in the group any less important to Jesus. It just was the moment that drew out, this is your calling. But now remember, other people are in the room. So nine verses later, okay, this is a very short time later, Jesus is off sharing, he's not off, but he's sharing on a long tangent of wisdom. And then he gets into how he's going to die. He's going to die this terrible death. And Peter's sitting there, and this is what I think Peter was thinking. This is just a total opinion. I think Peter's sitting there thinking, well, if I'm the rock, you're not dying. If I'm the one you're going to build the church on, this isn't true. And the more he's listening to Jesus, the more he's like, oh, no, no, no. He's like, Jesus, we need to talk over here. Because now he's put himself in this place of, I'm, I'm the man. I mean, you just said it. I'm the man, right? So he goes, Jesus, we need to talk over here. And he says, you're not going to die we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus rebukes him in one of like the worst rebukes in the Bible, in my opinion. He goes, you're not even thinking like God thinks. You're thinking like Satan thinks. And the phrase Jesus says in the Amplified Bible is, you're a stumbling block to me. <clears throat> we all think like the devil sometimes, but to be a stumbling block to Jesus, that's a hard one, you know? And so here Peter goes from he's the man to now he's in Jesus's way of what God's wanting to accomplish. And then as if that wasn't enough, it was this private conversation. Then Jesus turns to the whole group and he brings them up to speed on what Peter just said. It's like, oh no, Lord. <laughs> You're supposed to be my safe place, you know? And now you just expose him to everyone. So now Peter's on, the, on this pedestal and now he's down here. And what do you think the disciples may have been thinking? Oh, there's time for me yet. <laughs> Maybe, right? I doubt they were going, oh, poor Peter, you're the rock. And now I think they were going, yes. <laughs> I missed it, but I have a chance. So that, and then we go on to Matthew 17. Six days later, it says, they go to the transfiguration. And Jesus takes, he selects from him James, John, and Peter, okay? 
sons of thunder and Peter, they go up this rock. This crazy thing happens. Jesus transforms into all of his glory, and Moses and Elijah appear, and they're talking in words everybody can understand. This is insane, right? And they're having this out-of-body moment, and Peter, all he can think to say is, we should just live here. Let's just build tents and live here. Here's what I think is happening in that moment, okay? Because we're not talking about the spiritual aspects of what Jesus was doing. We're talking about the context of the relationships, right? I think James and John were going, oh, Peter's doing it again. Yes. (laughs) Because Jesus looks at Peter. He's like, we're not staying here. This is just a blip on the radar. And I think part of the transfiguration was to elevate the thinking of these three to a place where they could begin to understand who Jesus wanted them to be, right? Okay, a little bit later, Matthew 18, verse 1. All the disciples come to Jesus and they ask this question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? This is a simple question if we only flip to Matthew 18. But if we look at the context, after Peter got picked as the rock, I think there was a lot of self-questioning happening in all the twelve. So much so that two chapters later, they all band together and they come and they say, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? I actually don't think they were asking about which subset of people. I think it was an internal heart question. Am I significant to you, Lord? Because you said Peter. And then you took these three, and I don't know what happened on that mountain, but something happened because they all came down, they were changed forever, and they won't talk about it. So who's the greatest? Right? This is in all of our hearts. This isn't something that we need to, like, shy away from. We all have these moments of going, am I important to you, Lord? And Jesus' answer is so vague. This is one of those great parable moments where you're like, Lord, I don't think that's what they were asking you. And he goes in to talk about children and serving and the least of these. And, and I don't think anybody was satisfied with the answer because just a few verses later, one chapter later, Peter straight up says to Jesus, what are we going to get for following you? Now, if you take each of these stories out of context, we can miss what's happening. But I think if we look at the overarching narrative, the disciples are still trying to figure it out. What's in this for me? We asked you, we kind of roundabout asked who's the greatest, and then you gave us an answer that didn't satisfy. So now Peter's like, let's not give it any vagueness. Let's just come straight up and say, we left everything. What are you doing for me? So Jesus says, you guys are going to sit on 12 thrones and rule with me in eternity forever. I don't know about you, but that was a satisfying answer to me, right? Okay, cool, (laughs) amazing. But it's not satisfying to some of them, in particular James and John, because what do they do? They go tell Mama. They go tell Mama Zebedee, okay, in the next 50, 30 verses. Mama Zebedee, Salome is what her name is, she comes to Jesus and she goes, she comes with her boys. She goes, I have a question for you, Lord. I want you to do something for me. Now, why would she do this? Here's what I think. Jesus says, you guys are all going to sit in these 12 thrones, right? And I think these two boys are like, well, if Peter is the rock, we're going to be the greatest. So we're going to sit on the left and right of those thrones. He didn't assign who gets to go where, so let's ask. So they devise this plan, like, actually, let's have mom ask, because we know Jesus has a sweet spot for the mamas, because he does, all throughout the scripture, right? And so Salome walks up with total gusto, boys in tow. And she goes, I'd like you to do something for me, Lord. And Jesus goes, what do you wish? He doesn't have any hesitancy. And she says, I want you to let my boys sit on your right and your left, which is the place of honor. She's referring to him saying they were given 12 thrones, right? So she's like, let me go ahead and assign these for you. These two are the best, and they need to go in these two spots, right? I love this. This is so phenomenal to me. So Jesus says, 
oh, I don't think that can happen. You know, can you do, can you handle the suffering? Can you handle the cup that I have to drink? You know what the boys say? Oh, we can. So that tells me they were totally in on it. This wasn't mama wanting her place for her boys. This was the boys using mama to get a place for themselves, right? Now think about this in the context of the disciples. What about Peter? These three together have been the three that Jesus chose to be his closest. And they totally just booted him out. So if you've ever felt rejected or betrayed, you're in good company. (laughs) In the context of the church, in the context of ministry, you're in good company. And so then it says, Jesus, you know, he says, well, you can drink the cup of my suffering, but it's not for me to assign, which is like, oh, burn, you know. I'm like, yes, I can take it. I can take it, Lord. Give me that place. And then he goes, hey, you're going to take it, but I can't give you that place. That's up to God. (laughs) It's like, why did I ask? (laughs) Now I have to do the suffering, and I don't even know what's coming for it. Excuse me. It's so comical to me. That I just can, can you guys envision this? I can just envision this playing out. And then, then it says in a couple verses later, the rest of the disciples caught wind of what the Zebedees were doing. And, uh, and they were indignant. It says angry, resentful. You know who was probably leading that charge? Peter. Because he just got booted out, right? And he's like, I'm the rock. And I'm sure at some level he was thinking, I probably should have asked for that right-handed spot. At the, be- at the beginning, I think some of the disciples were thinking, ah, that was brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? Right? If I was Jesus, I think the bulk of my three years of ministry on earth would be incredibly disheartening. Because when we watch the disciples again and again, totally miss what he's trying to say, totally misconstrue what he's trying to say, flat out misunderstand him, openly reject him, start vying for a position amongst each other. That's a challenging community group. That's one that I might need some inner healing from after leading something like that, right? If we're sitting in the room and everybody's jockeying for a position and bringing your mom in town to help you out, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? But the thing that I felt like God was showing me through all of this is what's happening in the, in the hearts of the disciples is the same thing that happens in our own hearts. It's this need to know, am I valuable? Do I bring something to the table that's worthwhile? It, in this context, am I recognized as having something to contribute? James, John, and Peter, everybody recognized they had something to contribute because they were being chosen by Jesus to be, they were being set apart. But the rest of the 12, the other nine, I think there was a lot of questioning in their hearts. I left a lot for you, Lord. Is there a place for me here? Is this worth it for me? And the thing that we need to do with each other and with ourselves is the very thing that Jesus did with all 12. Give permission for growth. In each of these situations, the disciples did really mean things to each other, not to be mean, but in the process of trying to find their own worth, right? Sometimes when we're in the process of trying to figure out where we fit, we can inadvertently hurt somebody else. I don't know if James and John connived together and said, well, that Peter's always saying, you know, silly things, so let's boot him out. I think it was in their, in their narrow-mindedness, there's only two chairs, so we should do that because we're brothers. I don't know if they were intentionally trying to say, Peter, you're not a part of us, but that's what happened, right? And so Peter had to go on his own journey to deal with that. So a lot of times the intentional pain, the, the unintentional pain that happens in a community setting 
is really related to people trying to work out their own salvation, trying to work out how do I fit? What's my identity? And so we need to take the mind of Christ, which is what Jesus did, and say, you have permission to be on this journey. We need to open our minds to where they're big enough, to where there's a seat for everyone. Even Judas. There's a seat for everybody, that God has prepared a place for everybody, and it doesn't matter what place it is. You just need to rest in the fact that you have one. Right? So I just, I want to I challenge you guys. When you feel situations where you're frustrated, why did you do that? That hurt me. Because that's real, right? Living in community, that's real. Things come up. I can guarantee you I have probably hurt the feelings of a number of people in this room, and it's highly likely I might continue to do that accidentally. I don't want to do that. It's not like I wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to draw a card of a name. Let's hurt them today, <laughs> right? But things happen unintentionally because we're in the process of trying to figure life out. It's the same for Grant. It's the same for any church leader that you've ever had. In our journey, we're trying to have permission to grow. I hope that a year from now, where we are in our life with Jesus is not where we are now. And so we need you guys to give us permission to be on a growth journey. We need you guys to be, to, to pray for us that we'll continue to grow, right? That we'll continue to take new ground with the Lord, to have deeper revelations. And that's our prayer for you. So if we all adopt this mentality that I'm giving you permission to be on your journey, that I'm not going to take my first impression of you and just label you as that forever, because that leads to hopelessness. I asked you guys last week to share comical stories of uh, small group settings, right? And I got a response. I won't tell you who it is, but I thought this story was just so perfectly in line with what we're talking about today. And um, <clears throat> this girl was in a small group setting, and she was, they were ending their small group. I may not get all the details of the story right, but they were all going around talking about the greatness of the year, and somehow the conversation turned to first impressions. What was my first impression of you? And so they're all going around, they're saying, here's my first impression of you, and it was all really encouraging until it came to her. And everybody's first, everybody's first impression of her was, probably should never have been said out loud. And so they're all going around, they're saying, oh, I thought you were all about this, and really stuck up, and I thought you were going to be like this, and one by one around the group, it's like the whole mood is just bringing way down, and she's sitting there kind of like, how do I get out of this? Thanks a lot, you jerks, you know? I don't know if that's what she was thinking, but that's probably what I would be thinking. And they're going, and then the leader of the group figures it out, and so then the leader starts going, oh, but we don't think that anymore. And they, oh, no, 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 we don't think that anymore. So then they go around and start over-flattering her to make up for the fact that they thought this, these terrible things. And the, it's just a big downward spiral, right? And because it could have been this moment of, you know, maybe we got off on the wrong foot, but this is who you are. Let's not talk about that. But instead it was, here's the foot we got off. It was red. It ha you know, like describing every detail about it, which isn't helpful. And I read that story and my heart just uh, cringed. You know, we can all put ourselves in that moment and think, oh Lord, please don't let anything like that ever happen to me. <laughs> but it does sometimes. Sometimes we have first impressions of people that aren't good. Sometimes we have tenth impressions of people that are not so positive. But if we commit in our hearts, I'm giving you permission to grow. Even if we have a negative first impression, there's room for change. Now, permission to grow doesn't look like this. You really need to quit doing that. <laughs> right? 
this is so annoying, you're still doing that, you know, and I'm expecting you to live up to this standard because that's where you're growing to. That's not permission to grow. Permission to grow is in your heart saying, there's grace for you to be on your journey. And if it hurts me, I'm going to take it to the Lord. And I'm going to say, you know what, Lord, you, you restore my heart. You deal with this place that's offended by this person. Now, if there's repeated offense by someone, it's okay to draw a boundary, which we can talk about at another point. We won't get into all that today. But in general, most of the offenses that happen come because they're unintentional with the person just trying to figure out how to live their life, right? So we're going to do what? We're going to give permission for people to be on their growth journey. (coughs) You know, the disciples stepped on a lot of toes. But one of the things that I find amazing is where did they end? How did they end the story? They were a ragtag group of crazy people. They were consistently offending each other. If you really look at it, it's pretty crazy how little they all thought of each other at times. (laughs) But where did they end? Peter became one of the greatest champions of love and unity. He became one of the greatest champions of how to shepherd God's flock. In 1 Peter, he has this great, great moment where he talks about shepherding the flock of God with great care and how do you do that, right? This is the one who shortly before had just a few years before, was totally not able to shepherd anybody. Shepherding was not even probably a concept in his mind. Leading impulsively and chopping off ears and all this crazy stuff was how he was, right? John, the one whose best idea was to destroy the whole city, becomes the one who says, without love, you're missing everything. That's a huge transformation, (laughs) if you think about it. That's a complete identity shift, right? And so much so that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he actually gives his mother into John's care. So just in these three short years, the son of thunder becomes the apostle of love who Jesus says, my most precious possession, my mother, now please you take care of her. If you guys have an elderly relative, you don't give that relative into the care of someone who's calling down fire to destroy a city. That's not, right? That's not really the type of characteristic that you want someone who's frail to be around. (laughs) You want someone who's nurturing, who's kind, who sees a bigger picture. And so John, just in a few chapters, makes this dynamic transformation. What if Jesus had quit? What if he had withdrawn? Oh my Lord, that's your best idea? Back to the drawing board. Moving on. I'm going to change groups. (laughs) If we're putting it in today's world, you know. Well, I tried. Not going anywhere. What if? So I want to pray because I don't want us to lose sight of what the goal really is here for. We're not a club. The church is not intended to be a club. I shared with you guys last week that I was in a sorority in college, and one of the things that you do in a sorority is you do the rush process where you pick who your new members are going to be. And the way you do that, just to be totally honest, is you decide, do I like you or not? It's weird. It was one of the more uncomfortable moments of my life because you'd have this like two-minute conversation with someone and then you get out a paper and you write down, are you like me or are you not like me? And if you're like me, you go on to the next round and if you're not, you don't. It's bizarre. (laughs) But it's a club. It's a social club. So they're trying to create an environment where everybody's kind of the same, right? And all the groups are doing it and all the groups are filled with different people. So there's kind of a place for everybody as long as you can find it. But this is not the way the church is supposed to function. 
And that is the way the American church functions a lot, right? We've all probably been in church settings where it's like, well, I don't really fit here, and so I have tried and tried and tried, and people just won't love me. And we're all in this process going, I'm trying to find my significance. Where do I fit? And everybody else in, the, in that context, not all churches, but some churches, are sitting there thinking, well, you're not like me in this. So I really only like to spend time with people who bless me and who encourage me and I never feel frustrated by. So I'm just not going to tell you about what we're doing. I've been there on the other side of it where you're like, well, I didn't know that was going on. What's wrong with me that I don't fit, right? But if we get rid of this club mentality, if we get rid of this mentality that I can only be enjoying my life if everybody around me is the same, then we tap into the heart of God, which is phenomenally filled with all kinds of grace and power, and you get to grow and mature by being around people who get annoying sometimes. (laughs) And so my hope for community groups here is that our community groups would always be diverse. And I'm saying that knowing that's a stretch. It is. It's hard. You know, it's hard to sit and have a conversation with somebody. You think, wow, we are so different. But I don't have to function here. I can actually come up higher and function here and say, but if I'll press in and see you the way God sees you and believe that you have room to grow and I have room to grow, a year from now, we can be incredible friends, even though we're completely different people. Does that make sense? So what I want to do to end is let's just pray into that, okay? And then, um, you know, with your family or with the Lord or however you want to do that this week, I'd like for you to just spend some time just thinking about it. Just where do I fit with this? Where do you find yourself in the narrative of these disciples? Are you James and John? Are you Peter, the one who got booted out? Great moment and then seriously rebuked and then overlooked by all your friends. Are you Jesus, who's just so mercifully gifted that everybody has a home in you and that's amazing? Pray for me if that's where you find yourself. (laughs) So I want you to find yourself in this narrative. Maybe you're not any of the three. Maybe you're Matthew. Maybe you're Judas. I don't know. Where do you fit? But ask the Lord to show you and then ask him to grow you so that we can all have this mentality, okay? So let's pray. And you guys pray with me. Father, we thank you that your heart is for all people to know you, for all people to encounter you. And we thank you that each person in this room has something of you to give, even if it looks so different than the person on their right and their left. And so this morning, I just ask for you to heal every wounded place. I ask you to bandage up every broken heart, all the pieces that have been cast aside by the club mentality of church or by others just trying to find their significance in you. Lord, would you bring perspective to those situations and heal them so that we can move forward and we can adopt this mentality to give permission for those in the room to grow, for ourselves to grow. And Lord, we thank you that you are moving dynamically in our city and in our homes and in our hearts. And so I just ask you to go further and farther than we could ever believe or dare to ask. In our own hearts, take us further and farther into you so that we can have your heart. And I ask also, Holy Spirit, give us the eyes of Jesus to be able to see beyond the momentary uh, disappointments, the momentary misunderstandings, to be able to see beyond those offenses that want to rise up, and to choose to love, to choose to prefer each other better than ourselves, to choose to adopt your mentality of love and kindness and care and and patience with those around us. In the name of Jesus, 
Amen.